I wonder, has there ever been a time when public discourse was not completely preoccupied with the topic of unethical leadership? Has that ever been the case? From Watergate to Iran-Contra to Whitewater to Monica Lewinsky to falsifying WMDs in Iraq, we seem infatuated with looking for leaders to be our saviors and then immediately burning them in effigy when we find out they are unethical, as if it's a shock that they got to where they are by being ethical? So confusing. Just look at our own beautiful utopian version of constitutional democracy as it currently sits. We have more infighting, more backstabbing, wondering if this justice will step down or if that public official was in collusion or if our president did something illegal and should be impeached. Meanwhile, the opinions of the masses that follow can't seem to decide whether they want a savior or no leader at all. Mass chaos and anarchy sound great until the city doesn't pave the pothole in front of my house or can't help me to afford health care. We can't make up our minds. Do we want a leader or not? Humankind is consumed with leadership and rule, and some of you who are Democrats right now think I'm tending towards a Republican statement. And some of you who are Republicans think I sound more Democratic. We're all so ready to fight for our party and our tribe. But the reality is, is that humankind is consumed with leadership and rule because we have tossed it aside and we've rebelled against it. The rule that is supposed to be in place, the rule of the God that created us. Millennia of humanity's existence have been devoted to keeping people in power and rule through the work of the masses whether it be the Tower of Babel, the Pyramids of Giza, the systems of lords and ladies in 19th century England, or the various titles we throw around now like Wall Street or the 1%. The world that we live in, its system, thrives on injustice, unjust leaders, greed, all that drive it, and we are all in the midst of it. But as we discussed last week, the best solution for misuse is not disuse. It's not to get rid of it, but it's proper use. And mankind knows this. Thus, we go through this cycle every four years. Can you believe it's almost here again? Oh, Lord, help us. 22 Democrats and two Republicans vying for a chance to be our savior. I mean, our president. And many will hope in that one person until that thing comes out about the candidate that bothers a portion of the population and then they are immediately thrown on the trash dump of failed leaders that have been built throughout history. The world is begging for a just and ethical leader. Mankind's cry is, we all want an ethical king that makes things right. And we know that we need one because left to ourselves, it is nothing but selfish chaos. And so in this section of Deuteronomy on the laws of leaders, I believe we will find our answer for that just and ethical leader. And it is not through a future presidential candidate, nor a current one. The section before us this morning is that of the laws concerning Israel's kings. And it is in the midst of this text that I believe we will see the qualities and characteristics of what I'm calling this morning the obedient king can write that down. That's the title of this sermon, The Obedient King. And I believe it will point us to an understanding of the King of Kings, Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. And it will also tell us 
how we are called to exist within his inaugurated kingdom. And if we, his body, brothers and sisters in Christ, can do this, church, I believe we will become a ray of hope to those who are looking for something different than what they see before them in the news each and every day. What I hope to explain to you is the fact that people are looking for the people that follow a king, a righteous king, an ethical king. And our evangelism is moot if we do not live a life that shows that we follow the king. So let's begin by reading uh, from our reading this morning, Deuteronomy 17, if you'll turn there with me. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. Give me an amen when you get there. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner as king over you um, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses? Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Church, what we see plainly here is this the requirements of an obedient king. The requirements of an obedient king. As I noted already, every human is looking for a king. Even those of us that are the most rebellious, we want someone to lead us. And the anthropological theme that seems to exist across cultures and times is this idea that earthly human leadership comes from a divine source. This week, the king of Thailand, if you go and follow the story, it's quite an odd deal. He was just enthroned. He's a very interesting guy. But he had to go through all of his various religious ceremonies because he has been placed by the gods, he says. It is across cultures that we believe that human leadership comes from divine sources. And evangelicals are no different. Every president that we think backs us, we back. Whether or not he fits this in the slightest I'll leave it there. Human leadership, we think, comes from a divine source. For example, the IVP biblical background commentary says this, the Sumerian king list, which is a few thousand years old, it begins with the line, when the kingship was lowered from heaven. The assumption throughout Mesopotamian history is that every ruler received his certification to reign from the gods. And this plays out, as I already noted, from the most rural tribal chieftains, to the monarchical system of what was once one of the world's great superpowers, the United Kingdom of Great Britain. 
But what is so interesting about this is that all of these systems speak of a God who is distant from mankind. These false systems speak of a God who spun up the cosmos, instituted royal hierarchy, and then backed away from his creation, letting them do whatever they wanted. But the laws regarding Israelite kings are very different. The reason for this difference is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob desires relationship with his people. He desires to be one with them and to be amongst them. And the question that's throughout the Old Testament is, if he is present, why would we need another king? The Bible is clear that he puts leadership in place. Yes, he has judges and priests, as we'll see. He has Levites. But in these roles, these are actually required. He says, you shall put them in place. And this tends to fit with the biblical narrative because Adam and Eve, they were intended for mankind to be God's sub-regents, his ruling agents over his creation as a kind of royal middle management of sorts, acting as the intermediary between God and his creation. But this section on a king, well, it's not necessary because Yahweh was already their highest good. He was their king. And the need to have a ruling human being as king, was something out of the Gentile system of rule, not the Hebrews. And so this law regarding having a king was not a requirement. It was actually a concession. Did you notice that in the first couple of verses? It's a concession. It was a concession to a people that Moses clearly states are in need of a better law, a better covenant, and a better heart. As we close down Deuteronomy in a few months might take us a while, but we'll get there. We will see that Moses knows that they need a better covenant and they need a better leader. We will even begin to see that next week as we talk about the prophet that is to come that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, Israel did not need a king, but God legislated the idea of a king for them because they were bound to fall prey to the idea, like all the rest of the nations, that they needed a king. And so he spells out five requirements made up of one declaration, three prohibitions, and one command. Five requirements. Let's look at them first. First, the declaration that they must be chosen by God and that they must be an Israelite. They shouldn't be covenanted with another God. They should only have covenant allegiance Excuse me, with Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Secondly are the prohibitions. First, he says, no acquiring an abundance of horses, especially not from Egypt. No acquiring of excessive number of wives. And no acquiring excessive silver or gold. All of these point to the acquisition of power, wealth, and prestige. Horses were a statement of war capability. Horses were like tanks or aircraft carriers or nuclear missiles today. It was a sign of military potency, and God desired for the king to rely on him and his power, not their own military might. Also, they were especially prohibited from aligning with foreign powers who worshipped a different god, like Egypt. In fact, that was the nation that God had redeemed them from and pulled them away from. Why, he says, would they be going back to them? The acquisition of wives was less of a sexual issue than it was an issue of making alliances and allegiances with foreign nations that worshipped foreign gods. 
If you were a king, marrying off your daughter to another king was what assured an alliance and peace. It assured you that you would not attack his kingdom or else your wife would be angry with you. And he would not attack yours, otherwise he might kill his own daughter, your wife. It became an issue of spiritual allegiance when the heart of the king then started to drift towards the wife because of sexuality, because who we have sex with is who we start to listen to a lot. And then you start to follow their gods and worship another deity other than Yahweh. These four things out of the five can be summed up by two simple statements. The summary requirements of the obedient king were that they were to lead the people into de- in devotion to Yahweh. And they would lead in humility and meekness. Dear church, I do not care if you are Republican. I do not care if you are Democratic. The God you serve says this is the sign of a good leader that you back. Anything outside of this is detestable to God. Wrap your political opinions around that. These three prohibitions are followed by one positive command. And that's there in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20 that we read already. That when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. The obedient king was to take a blank book or scroll and write a copy of the law. Now there's debate here as to whether he means the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or just the book of Deuteronomy. Because that word here for law in the Hebrew is Torah. But in the Hebrew, the phrase, the full phrase is Mishnah HaTorah HaTzot, which can be taken to mean this repetition of the Torah. And Deuteronomy is a repetition of the Torah. That's what Deuteronomy means in Greek, a second copy of the law or a second law. And so whether it's Deuteronomy or the full Torah, the king would write down every word. He would copy it for himself in excruciating detail so that he would fully internalize it. Raise your hand if you've ever done this practice, written out the entire Torah. Look around. Do you think it might be something that's worthwhile? We wonder, I wonder sometimes, guys, God, why don't you help me memorize Scripture more? Why isn't it just in my heart? Well, the answer is, is because... Hans, you're lazy and you don't put enough time into it. Why don't you write it out and copy it? Then you might memorize it. They were to internalize it so that they would walk with it and reign with it. It says it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and doing them. And notice that this was a copy that needed to be checked by the priests. It couldn't be the law with a twist or a change. It had to be the law that God set forth, not the king's opinion of the law. I guarantee you that if we were to write this out, I think we'd have a bunch of redacted verses, don't you think? We'd probably have some we skip over, some we don't like. Oh, that section in Deuteronomy? I don't really like Deuteronomy at all, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And so we see both rebellion against and adherence to this command as it's taken forth and it plays out in the future kings of Israel, both the good kings and the bad kings. It's as if the narrative of Israel's rulers was a case study in the truth of this small text. And we need to read the stories of the kings in this way. 
We can begin with the section that Rachel and Jordan read to us earlier, 1 Samuel 8. Would you look there with me now? Go ahead and turn back there. 1 Samuel 8. Verse 3 tells us that Samuel's sons, who were supposed to be righteous and just judges, who were supposed to follow in the section we talked about last week, that they wouldn't take bribes, that they wouldn't be perverted, that they would judge rightly. Well, they were not, and they didn't follow this law. They were taking bribes, they were perverting justice, and so the people did exactly what Moses thought they would. They said, give us a king to judge us. Is this not what we do every four years? We really had hope for this guy George W. or Barack or Donald or whatever. And man, he hasn't quite filled the bill. We want somebody new, someone else. Give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. We go to the polls. The reality is, is that king's going to be no better. And we know it. And yet, we're on Facebook and Twitter ranting about the ones that we think are right, which definitely helps our gospel witness, does it not? Give us a king, we say. Well, they did the same thing. And their solution was not to turn back to God, but to say they wanted a king instead of a God to rule over them. And look at verse 7. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It was Yahweh as king that they were dismissing. God's plan was for an earthly king merely to be an image and reflection of his heart. But the people wanted one that, look at verse 20, helps them be like other nations that judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, if you've read this section of your Bible prior to 1 Samuel 8, who is it that fights the battles for, for the people of Israel? Yahweh. And they think some puny human is gonna do better than that? That's how warped their thought process had gotten. The people want to give the king judging powers and powers for military authority, but all God dictates is that the king is to be a humble servant that leads the people according to the word and law of God that has been so internalized that he can't help but operate within it. Dear brothers and sisters, our country is doomed because we will never elect a president like this. And we must stop infighting and figuring out what the least worst evil is and rise above it and proclaim that even when this country is in ashes, our king will reign supreme. That's the evangelical witness of a Christian. And as far as the Republican or the Democrat in power, you pray for them. You pray that they know the word of God, that they follow it, and that somehow, some way, they, in their huge role of persuasion, will direct people to the true king, the true leader, Jesus Christ. Well, so who did they get? After they refused to obey the voice of Samuel, who did they get? They got Saul, then David, then Solomon. And by this point, things are going really sideways. Solomon prays for wisdom to lead the people well, and God gives it to him. Go ahead and turn to the right to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. 
And let me put a caveat on my earlier comment there because it might have taken you off guard. What I mean by this country is doomed is not that it's doomed tomorrow, not in 50 years, not in 200 years, but here's the truth. Read your Bible. Every kingdom of the world goes down in ashes. It won't be like the United States gains more power and then suddenly we roll into the millennial kingdom and everybody speaks English. That's not how it works, guys. Every nation will go down under the submission of Jesus Christ, including our own. So we pray for the men and women that fight for our country. We pray for the leaders that lead this country. Not so our country can be great, but so Jesus Christ can be great. We do not try to bring down this country. We do not pray against our military or our leaders. But we do recognize that in the midst of all of this, striving that one day Jesus will reign. So hopefully that clears things up a bit. Well, here in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked for wisdom, ask this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I also give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare to you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God wants to bless the kings of Israel. He wants to build them up, but even Solomon seemingly refuses to study the law of God. He does the very things that you're not supposed to do, so much so that some scholars think that the section in uh, Deuteronomy was placed in there after Solomon to try and chastise Solomon. That's not what happened, and we know that from a number of other reasons, but the reality is he did everything that was against it. Uh, turn with me to 1 Kings 11 and take a look there, just a little bit to the right. Go to 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 1. Okay, now just keep in your mind Deuteronomy that we just read and, and use it as a filter as we go through uh, chapter 11 here. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Problem or no problem? Major problem, okay? Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Where's Pharaoh from? Egypt. So he made an alliance with Egypt, okay? You don't have to be super smart to read through Deuteronomy 17 and go, that's not great, Okay. He had Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. Now, in our day and age, we go, awesome, so he was a diverse employer, right? <laughs> you know, he had diversity in his wives. No, that's not what it's talking about. Those names mean that they all worshipped foreign gods and brought those foreign gods into his household and his marriage bed, okay? You shall not enter... Uh, any, uh, all the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, because you can't help but do it. Singles, uh, don't think that you'll somehow be able to have self-control when you're having sex with someone who's a non-believer and then somehow get out of the relationship. It won't happen. They will drag your heart away from Jesus. Stay away from it. That one's for free. <laughs> Number uh, Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away from his heart. And just FYI, that means that he had 700 mother-in-laws. Poor Solomon. Uh, number 4, my mother-in-law's great though, by the way. Um, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Wah, wah. Well, remember that we said we could sum up the text in Deuteronomy with these two points, lead the people in devotion to Yahweh. How's Solomon doing on that one? Not great. Lead in humility and meekness. Is Solomon doing well on that one? Not really. Look at what happens after Solomon, though. His son, Rehoboam, takes the throne. But there is a division and rebellion brewing, and Rehoboam seeks counsel about how to approach all the people that are causing division within his kingdom. Look at what happens. Turn to 1 Kings 12, starting in verse 6 there. He goes to the older men of the church and says, how should I handle this? Uh, And it says in verse 6, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men had given him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, This you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. I guess that's smack talk in those days. That would probably get you beat up on the playground nowadays. But And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. All right? You really want to scare your kids, use that as a disciplinary measure, right? No, don't do that. DHS will come and find you, rightly so, okay? The reality is, is Rehoboam built this throne on uh, division and on forcefulness. He wasn't following the idea of a god and a king that was meek. Look at what happens after Solomon and Rehoboam. Look at uh, verse 16a there, what, what happens. In verse 16, it says, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. And they broke the kingdom. It split into Judah and Israel at that point. And look at what happens after Solomon. Look up on the screen here. I made this for you to be able to see it a little bit. Here are the kings. The red is evil. And the yellow is okay, moderate. And there's only one who technically is listed by Scripture as good, and I'll show you why. Now, some of you might be like, wait a minute, those okay guys, they walked in the Lord. But what's interesting is if you look at some of these uh, kings, you're going to see some interesting verbiage around them. But the kings of Israel had stepped away from God's word, and they had become less and less a reflection of Yahweh. I don't know where this idea came from that you read the Bible once and then you're done and you just have to apply it, but that is garbage. You need to read the Bible all the time because it needs to go in and be internalized. This is so applicable for us. Dear brothers and sisters, life is a trajectory. One day leads to one week, which leads to one year, which leads to a lifetime of apathy. Look at what happened as the leaders of Israel did not hold the word of God in high regard each and every day. What would your name have next to it if you were sitting there? 
The reality is, is the sign of a Christian is that when conviction is brought, that we're not following the word of God, we immediately bow the knee. We don't hem and haw, we don't fight. We bow the knee. When a brother or sister comes to you and says, brother, your life is out of order, you bow the knee. You don't hem and haw. You bow the knee. That's the Christian. This is so applicable for us. When we do that, when we minimize the necessity of the word of God in our lives, we will slowly but surely become our own lawmakers. It is in black and white and red and green and yellow up there. We will slowly become our own lawmakers because our world revolves around us. And we want so badly to fight for our rights. And if we are not constantly in the word of God, constantly letting our hearts be overcome by it and what it says about the character of God and justice and righteousness and selflessness and laying down our lives, then we will begin to follow our own foolish counsel of our own hearts that is motivated by self-protection and ego and selfishness and arrogance. If you want to know more about it, I've written a book on it in my own life. And only by God's grace have I started to step out of some of it in the last few years. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you seriously studied the Bible? And when was the last time that when conviction came, you bowed the knee immediately? When was the last time you ingested what the Bible calls you to? Or are you checking it off as a checkbox? When was the last time you felt the pain of conviction that our hearts are in need of every day to point us to Christ's redemptive work, that we need him and his spirit and his word in our lives? You see, from this point on, the kings of Israel divided into Israel and Judah, and they looked like this because there's this pattern of evil. And leaders of Israel and Judah were predominantly wicked, evil men, some women scattered in there, who led the people in pagan worship and debauchery. And throughout the lists of kings in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you will see that a number of the kings of Judah are spoken of as men who did what was right themselves, but they did not lead the people in what is right. And that's why they're yellow and they've got okay next to their name. Here's one example for, for you. This is Asa. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. Yes, he put away the male cult prostitutes, probably a good thing, out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. Cool. He also removed Makkah, his, father from, or his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. So cool. Good job, Asa. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. This same language, if you go and look at each of these kings that are listed as okay, is there. They did what was right in their own life. They had a very personal faith. But as far as the people they led, they didn't step in and say, hey, get that idol out of your life. Let's tear it down. A good leader, a good parent, a good friend steps in and says, dude, you got an idol in your life. It's time to kill it. We've become so individualized and personalized in the United States that we are going to be listed as okay in eternity. We'll get into heaven by the grace of God, but as far as whether or not we loved our brothers and sisters, that is to be seen. But then there's Josiah. Turn with me to 2 Kings 22. Go a little bit further to the right in your Bible. 2 Kings 22, verse 8. The story begins with Josiah desiring to repair the temple of Yahweh. He was eight years old when he began to reign, which means if you know my kids, John and Jaden are eight. 
And honestly, I think they could run this country sometimes better than some of the people we have in office. But the reality is, is they're eight. That's kind of a scary proposition. But the one thing that this eight-year-old had was he grew up with a reverence for the temple of God and the word of God. And look at what happened. Verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. In other words, it was missing. Nobody had been reading it. I wonder if that's what God would say about stumbling across the dust-covered Bible in our own house. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king, public reading of scripture. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And this doesn't mean he was part of the WWE. What this means is that he was mourning, okay? The king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, go inquire of Yahweh the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. You see, the rest of the chapters... 22 and 23 speak about Josiah. And what he could have gotten here was the full Torah, or it could have been just Deuteronomy. But either way, it incites Josiah in passion to massive reform. He reads the law and does what it says. Oh my goodness. He doesn't take time to think whether or not it fits into his schedule or whether or not he should or how it's going to impact his life. He just goes and does it. And the rest of chapters 22 and 23 is him destroying the high places the altars to foreign gods, removing the priests, reinstituting instituting the feasts, giving tribute to Yahweh as king, destroying the chariots and horses that had been built up and getting rid of the occult. This is a great dude. And for all this, look at how he is remembered. Look at chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, and notice the words very, very specifically. It says, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Does that sound familiar to anyone? What is that? It's part of the great Shema. According to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Josiah was the only king to be remembered in 1st or 2nd Kings, 1st or 2nd Chronicles as the king who followed the great Shema and actually reflected it. You see it there in verse 25? He was an obedient king. And what was it that made him so obedient? Absolute, undeniable submission to the word of God. An obedient king is absolutely submitted to the word of God. That is the requirement. And so a third summary statement can be added to what makes an obedient king. Not only does he lead the people in devotion to Yahweh, not only does he lead in humility and meekness, which doesn't mean weakness, it means strength under control. But third, he is submitted in thought and action to the word of God. He obeys right away. It's a word for us that we must do the same. And while Josiah is lifted up as that obedient king, 
He was unable to truly lead the people in righteousness because of the great evil idolatry that they had done. And so look at 2 Kings 23, 26 there. It says, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. We are so messed up when it comes to our view of God. I notice this more and more in counseling. We think that God is an angry God who's mad at his obedient kids, and so we stand in fear of him all the time. And then on the other side, we think that God blinks at sin. No big deal. He's a good God. It's the most confusing thing ever. Our obedience does not earn his love. He's loving, and he wants us to walk in obedience to him, but he's also ready to be a good father and discipline us as needed. Hebrews speaks about that clearly. Sin must be removed from our lives as soon as it is brought to our attention. When we don't see it, that's one thing. But I am blown away by how many of us proclaim to be Christians, know exactly what the word says, and then still fight against it. And the job of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ and the leadership in it, is to say, brother or sister, are you a Christian? Hopefully our answer would be yes. Do you submit to Jesus Christ as king? Hopefully the answer would be yes. My next question is, then what are you waiting for? If you know of brokenness in your life, it's time to remove it. And if you can't seem to overcome it on your own, you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that desire to walk with you in it. You see, the great truth is that it does not matter what kind of leader or president or king we get because a people that are rebellious at their core cannot be led in righteousness. It takes a king who is far greater than even Josiah. We need a king who is the better Josiah. And this is why the good news of the Bible is so important. And that good news is this. Jesus was and is the perfectly obedient king who leads his people in righteousness. Jesus was and is the perfectly obedient king who leads his people in righteousness. Israel wanted a king that was like the other nations, but therein lies a problem. The Gentile kings were those who lorded over their people in authoritarian authority. They were those who considered themselves the ultimate lawgivers. I find this in us as Christian parents all the time. We think we are the lawgivers. Parents, the only authority you have in your children's life is as you reflect the grace and mercy of the true lawgiver. You are not the king of your own castle by any stretch. The same is true for church leadership. Any authority that I have or that we as elders or we as leadership have, it's not because I'm a powerful guy. It's because if I am acting in the authority of the word and acting in the reflection of Jesus Christ, then it is upon those that are following to follow the lead. The second I step out of that, then you do not need to follow The people of Israel were those that considered themselves the ultimate lawgivers. These kings, the kings of the Gentile nations and eventually the kings of Israel considered themselves gods in that they were inspired by the deities with wisdom to make their own laws, but the laws themselves were their own. They weren't the creators. But Deuteronomy's view of a king is far different. Yahweh was always and will always be the ultimate lawgiver. The king was merely to be a vessel that rightly internalized and displayed the heart and character of those laws as he governed the people. 
The laws that could rightly be summed up in you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For on those, all other laws are founded. And this true king was to be one who led the people in devotion to the Father, to Yahweh, led them in humility and meekness, and was submitted in thought and action to the word of God. Does this sound like anyone we know? And so the book of John tells us that the word of God was with God and was God. And the word that created all things and brought life and light to the death and dark world that surrounded us was Jesus Christ. He is the absolute incarnation of the word played out in physical form. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You can't get better than that. The word made flesh. And not only was he the embodied word of God, but he knew how to be led by the Father and to lead by the word of God. Jesus quoted from Psalms 11, uh, from Psalms 11 times in the Gospels, but the next closest book that he quoted from, anybody want to take a stab at which one it was? Deuteronomy. Ten times from Deuteronomy. And when he was faced with temptation from the enemy, the only book that he used, want to take a stab at it? was Deuteronomy. I cringe at the fact that when I got asked to be a deacon at our last church, I was asked, have you read the whole Bible? And I, I actually said, yeah, I have. I don't know that I've read Deuteronomy, but I should never have been asked to be a deacon at that point. Jesus was the king spoken of in Deuteronomy that knew the word of God at his core. The embodied word of God came forth in a humble man named Jesus of Nazareth who learned the word of God as a human and learned to be submitted to it. And this God-man came to the earth not to lord over us, but to serve us. And because he has served us, he is now lord over us. When asked what leadership and authority was all about, this is what Jesus said. This is in Luke 22. A dispute arose among his disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This sounds like us as human, doesn't it? <laughs> How do I get a position of power? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? He's saying, isn't it like the Gentiles? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, the basic uh, reason that they missed Jesus and who he was was they were expecting an authoritarian Gentile king to come in wreaking havoc and killing everybody. They missed that the very God they served was going to send a king who was humble and meek and followed the word of God perfectly. That's why Jesus came as a servant the first time. And in doing so, by being the last, he shall now be made first. He will come to rule and reign. And this is the Jesus that spoke and taught the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the king who taught and modeled the idea of an upside-down kingdom where it is the servants of all that will become the royalty. Just ask our leadership, guys. None of us have power, and we know it. 
The job of a leader is to lay their life down so it can be tread upon by the people that they serve. To think that a leader is anything else, you're going to have false expectations that lead you to a place where you don't want to be a leader anymore. The king who modeled this is the king who calls us to step into the same mindset. This is the Jesus that Paul wrote of in Philippians 2. Take a look there with me. Philippians 2 verse 5. Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he wasn't trying to get that position, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, dear church, Jesus was the obedient king who came as a servant and in so doing fully embodied the heart of the creator God. And he so gave himself over in leading his people that he was crucified for it on a cross. And in so doing, he completed what Josiah could not. Josiah could not die for the sins of his people, nor could he lead them out of their sin. Second Kings said that the wrath of God remained but 1 John 2.2 says this about our king, that he by his death is the propitiation of our sins and not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the whole rebellious world. He, the righteous, in our place, the unrighteous. He was the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that brought me and brought you back into right relationship with the Father. And his sacrifice was accepted by a loving father who was working with the son by the spirit in bringing redemption to those who were his. And on that cross, Jesus was also enthroned as king of a people who will die with him, serve with him, and who will one day resurrect and reign with him. And this same Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for us as a servant, he will come again as a conquering king because he first came as that humble servant. And this is what the second part of Philippians 2 says. Look at verse 9. Therefore, because he died, because he was a servant, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It was by his willing sacrifice that God made him king, the Father made him king and exalted him above all authorities. And Jesus' resurrection three days later proved that he was indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will rightly come again to take the place of conquering king. The question for you is whether or not you want to submit to him. For those that are with him, we follow his lead in acting out the great command in the midst of our love for one another and for a lost and dying world. At the beginning of Philippians 2 says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, are those things true? There should be a hearty amen. Are those things true? Amen. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not out only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
See, dear church, Jesus is our Savior by taking our place and providing for us an atoning sacrifice. But he must also be our King, leading us in victory over sin and the death that surrounds us and often rears its head from within us. And if we bow the knee to Jesus now as our anointed King, he proclaims for us that we will likewise be rulers with him in the redeemed and resurrected creation. This is what Matthew 19, 28 says. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So dear brothers and sisters, you have a choice. You can be like the Gentiles who desire their kingdom now, their authority now, those who make their own laws and who are a law unto themselves. Or you can be like Jesus, as one of his people, obedient to the law of the Lord, the royal law of love, laying down your life in this world so that you might resurrect in the fullness of his kingdom in the next. If you don't know Christ as your savior and king, I would beg of you to please submit to him today. Lay down your pride, your defensiveness, your self-justification, your rebellion, and cry out to him to save you. Cry out to him to lead you and reign over you as a benevolent king because he desires to do so. And you can do that right where you sit. And we invite you to join us in the fellowship of his Holy Spirit here at this local church that unites us and seals us as his citizens. We call you to be a part of this church or a part of another local church. And if you want to talk with me about what it is to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk with you after service about what that is. I'm easy to spot. Just look for the seven-foot guy and we'll talk. For the rest of us who already know Jesus as king, I want to finish with this last quick point. As Christians, we proclaim this kingdom that we've been talking about by following our king. Some of us in this room need to make a decision whose kingdom we are going to serve. We spend so much time trying to gain wealth and authority and comfort. And so I ask you, is this life about giving you wealth, comfort, and power, or is it about you laying your life down to obey his rule and proclaim his kingdom? There are a number of us in this room that still need to decide. And if you are wondering if Jesus is your king or not, or you have a doubt that he is, then I would lovingly, lovingly submit to you that most likely he is not. Being his citizen is not something that kicks in after death takes us or Jesus returns or comes to us in a wave through a Jesus moment. It is something that starts now by us choosing to bow the knee. Notice what John calls us in Revelation 1.5. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made, is that past, present, or future tense? Past, moving into the current. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The kingdom is now. It's not fully here, but it is now. And today is the day to give your life over to him. And how do you do that? 
by bowing the knee to him. So first, let me give you some really practical things. Make it your highest priority to study the whole counsel of the word of God. Don't skip Haggai or Habakkuk because you don't know how to pronounce their names. Go read them. If you don't know it, come ask. We are in that in-between time and the Holy Spirit does not overpower us with the word of God, so we must choose to internalize and digest the word of God. There was a poster in one of my uh, early grade school classes that had Garfield laying on the floor with a lasagna on his stomach and books on his head. And it says, um, you are not going to learn by osmosis. You have to open the books. And I wish that I could actually find that, blow it up, and put it on that entire wall. Because so often, I think most of us, by carrying around our iPhones in our pocket that have the Bible app, we think that somehow it's going to get into our brains and we're going to become scripture geniuses. Open your Bible and read it. Not just the parts you like, not just the parts that make you fuzzy, happy. Read the parts that will change you. And God says that one day we will have the fully implanted word in our hearts, but that day is not here yet. So we must ingest it and internalize it. We must study it and meditate on it and apply it. If you need help on this, you can grab the scripture reading cards on the back table. You could download the Read Scripture app from the Bible Project, which is amazing. You can make it a habit to study what we study on Sunday every day throughout the week. Take a couple of the verses that I throw out, go back and reread through it and internalize it. You can even do what the kings were supposed to do. Buy yourself a notebook. Write out the entire Torah. Write out your own version. Well, not your own version, but write out a version that is your own of the law. Study the word of God. And remember that we are kings and queens in training. One day we will reign with Christ forever. That's what we are told there in Revelation. And so we better get a head start on being an obedient king or queen right now by studying the word of God. Second, don't just internalize it mentally, but also play it out practically. Submit in action to the word of God. Obey it right away when conviction comes. Last week, I called you to deal with conflict if there was conflict between any of you, going to the other person, which is super hard. Raise your hand if you think that you would enjoy going to somebody who you have conflict with to talk about it. Good, no one needs additional counseling. Nobody wants to do it. My children don't want to do it when I say, have you talked to your brother? Have you talked to your sister? But because they're obedient children, they go and do it. Whether it's conflict, whether it's addiction, whether it's mistreating your spouse, whatever it is that is sitting there weighing on you because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit today, act on it. Obey it. Going to the other person is hard, yes. But dear church, we follow a God that was willing to go to the cross to reconcile with us. Follow the Savior. We must be a people that are known by our humility so that when we are called out on something that is contrary to the heart of God, we don't fight it or draw back from God's people. We jump in. We submit to the conviction and enact change and seek out accountability. I'm so thankful for those of you that I see doing that on a regular basis. 
Not having your arm twisted to walk in humility or obedience, but proactively entering into that place of humility and repentance. So for those of you that are doing that, well done. Third, not only read the word, act on it. But third, recognize that to rule in Christ's kingdom is to serve one another and to lead one another. I don't want to be like those kings that were just okay because they were right in the eyes of God, but did nothing to impact those around them by serving them and holding them to a higher standard. Church, there is a reason that many visitors come here and go, whew, well, that was heavy. I don't feel light and lifted as I left. That church expects too much. They've got a how long a page of document of membership? Man, that seems excessive. There's a reason we do all these things. Because we don't want people who are halfway Christians coming here and thinking they can slip on by. Because it's not good for them and it's not good for us as leaders. I want us to be a community where we serve one another by leading each other away from idolatry and holding one another to a high standard like Josiah. So we need to submit to one another as we lead and serve each other as priests in the midst of the kingdom of our God. And so I want us to challenge ourselves this week, maybe even today, to step out in a way of service or sacrifice for another person, possibly even the person we're in conflict with, that may be uncomfortable, but it will speak to that person and to those around you that you have bowed the knee and are humbled by the obedient King Jesus. Mission Fellowship, dear visitors, let's be a kingdom of citizens striving to be fully submitted to the perfect, obedient King Jesus. Do you think he deserves that response? Do you think he deserves that response? Do you think he deserves that response? Absolutely.